0: Good. <laughs>
1: You know, for the last few weeks, I've been thinking about how we should begin this uh, little series on the book of 2 Timothy, and uh, as I talked it over with uh, Greg Hill, we uh, decided that this would be an appropriate way to begin. Uh, 2 Timothy is maybe the most personal book in the New Testament. Many of the New Testament epistles are written to churches, uh, churches that maybe have wandered into some error and they're getting a theological correction. Uh, Second Timothy, which we just heard, uh, is not like that. 2 Timothy is not so much a letter to an errant church, but it's a letter to a dear friend, a son in the faith. Offering not a theological correction, but some theocentric encouragement. Uh, See, Paul was in prison. He was in a dungeon. And and, and the the imprisonment that Paul was experiencing at that time uh, was different maybe from some of the other Roman imprisonments that Paul had had. At other points in Paul's life, he had been in uh, house arrest, things like that. But at this point, he was in a dungeon in Rome awaiting what he was certain was his execution. And so when Paul pens the words of 2 Timothy, he's writing his last words to a dear friend that he hoped would carry on the ministry that God was working through him. You know, I think about this book, and I think about its significance and its relevance to our lives, and I I think that it's incredibly important to us to read and to understand it and to to begin to seek to apply its principles in our lives because like Timothy, a lot of times we are not people who need more theological uh, correction. We certainly need the truth, but many times we've heard the truth. And what we need is not so much a theological correction as much as we need some theocentric encouragement to trust God in this day and in the days ahead. That was the case with Timothy, and I think many times that's the case with us. And so for the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at that, and we're going to look at it from this very personal letter, a letter so personal that it begins with talk of Timothy's mother and grandmother, and it ends with a request to bring him his coat before winter. You can imagine Paul shivering in the cell when he writes those words. I'm cold, Timothy. I left my coat in Troas. Could you please grab it and bring it to me before winter? It's a personal letter, and I think that we'll find some personal encouragement in it. And what I want to do in the next two weeks is this week we're going to look at uh, some of the the, the personal nature of the book because the Christian life is personal, and we're going to look at that this week. And then next week, we're going to look at some of the bigger themes of the book in terms of how we can be encouraged to continue on in the things that we have heard uh, from faithful men. So that's what we're going to look at next week. But this week, I wanted us to look at this issue of the Christian life being personal. We're going to see three things today, just quickly, uh, with the remainder of our time. And the first one is this, that following Christ can have seasons in the dungeon of loneliness. Following Christ can have seasons in the dungeon of loneliness. Uh, if you've got a Bible, look at Second Timothy. The book of Second Timothy begins in, in chapter 1, and we see Paul in prison, and he's writing this letter to Timothy, his son in the faith. And Paul makes this statement in chapter 1 and in verse 15. Paul says this, you know that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me, including Phagellus and Homogenes. What a sad statement. As Paul writes this, he says, yes, I'm in prison. Yes, I'm in a dungeon. And the picture that you see there is a picture of a Roman-style dungeon of the era. Paul is in this dank, dark cave But the thing that draws his attention is not so much his living conditions, not so much uh, how much his place of residence smelled or how evil or mean the guards were or his awaiting brutality at the hands of the emperor Nero. Paul doesn't focus on those things. Instead, Paul's mind goes to an even more painful fact, and that was that he has been now deserted by all of those in Asia. Probably what he means is that in the city of Ephesus, which is a city where Paul had an extensive ministry, which is a large, prominent city in the province of Asia, that upon Paul's arrest, they all backed away from him. They all let him be. They all pretended not to know him, similar to Christ's disciples on the night of his arrest. See, it had gone from being fashionable to be seen with the arising apostle— to being criminal to be seen in his vicinity. And Paul had apparently lost many friends in the province of Asia as a result. This book was written in roughly 67 A.D., right after the Emperor Nero had gone crazy and had blamed Christians for the burning of Rome. Because of that, he had taken a very vigilant approach to Christians and was martyring many of them, uh, one after the other. So when Paul gets arrested by Nero, he knows that he's in trouble. And when Paul gets arrested by Nero, everybody else knows if we're seen with him, we're going to be in trouble as well. Therefore, people began to back away from him. And I think, the th- I think the thing that was so painful for Paul uh, in 115 was this fact that everybody had deserted him. He mentions two of them by name, Phagellus and Hermogenes. He mentions another in chapter 4, Demas, people who left him, people who abandoned him when he needed them most. Because Paul was following Christ, he had found himself in a real dungeon, but also in a dungeon of loneliness. It's interesting, when Paul finds himself in that dungeon of loneliness, what he says though, in verse 16 of chapter 4, he says this, he says, at my first defense, no one came to my support. They probably had some kind of a public hearing about Paul where character witnesses could come and say, he's not such a bad guy, you ought to let him out. But after all of the lives that Paul had influenced, no one came to his defense on that day you imagine the pain that must have been the pain that Paul must have been feeling the loneliness he must have felt in that cold cell knowing that everyone had deserted him because it was no longer convenient to be his friend that's some real pain but what's interesting is what Paul says right following that right after saying at my first defense, no one came to my support but everyone deserted me look at what he says may it not be held against them. What a powerful statement that is. This is a man who sat in a dungeon awaiting death, and every friend that he had in the world seemingly had deserted him, and he was alone, and yet what he does, he doesn't speak angrily in their direction, he doesn't attack them. Instead, he says, may it not be held against them. See, Paul knew that the the weight of the chains of bitterness would be even greater than the weight of the chains of steel and iron that were holding him in that cell. And Paul said, may it not be held against them. You know, when we follow Christ, sometimes we may find ourselves in a dungeon of loneliness as well. One of the personal facts of the Christian life is that if we follow Christ long enough, there will probably be a season where we feel lonely. I recently heard uh, Charles Swindoll uh, speak, and and in that message, uh, Dr. Swindoll was encouraging a group of seminary students, and he, he said, if you're in the ministry long enough, you'll know what it means to be lonely. And you know what, I think I could expand that statement out to all those of us who are walking with Christ. If you walk with Christ long enough, there will be a season where you will experience a level of loneliness that you didn't previously know. There will be a season that because of a stance that you have taken for Christ, because of a decision to follow Him in a way that was unpopular or or whatever that you'll find yourself lonely. You might find yourself alienated from family. You might find yourself alienated from friends. You might find yourself misunderstood. You might find yourself uh the, the victim or, or on, on, the, on the butt end of several jokes, whatever it might be. But there'll come that time when we follow Christ, if we follow him long enough where we will have the feeling of loneliness. I, I, I've tasted it a couple of times in my life. Um... And it's painful, just like a cold, dark cell It um, just kind of sends a chill up your spine. But you know, one of the things that's an encouragement to us from the book of 2 Timothy, from this very personal book, is the encouragement that when we find ourselves in the dungeon of loneliness, that those who have left us, that we not hold it against them. That we follow the example of the Apostle Paul. The chains of bitterness are heavier than even our feelings of loneliness because they stick with us longer. We'll see in a minute how God met the need of Paul in that cell. But God will meet our needs in other ways. But if we hang on to a bitter root over those that we feel have abandoned us in our time of need, then we'll keep chained to that moment forever. Paul understood that, and we need to as well. If we follow Christ, there will be times when we might experience the dungeon of loneliness. But when that happens, we should not hold it against those who have left us. First interesting thing, first personal note. Second personal note is this, this, that Christ serves refreshment, through the lives of others. Christ serves refreshment through the lives of others. Now, Paul was in this cell in Rome, and all of those in the province of Asia had abandoned him. They had left him. But there was one person who didn't do that, and that person was this man named Onesiphorus. Look at what it says in verse 16 and following. It says, may the Lord show mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he searched hard for me until he found me. May the Lord grant that he will find mercy from the Lord on that day. You know very well in how many ways he helped me in Ephesus. You know what's, what's interesting about this man Onesiphorus, and we, do, we know very little about the man. Uh, but we know that he went to Rome looking for Paul. Now, you saw the picture earlier about that Roman dungeon cell. Uh, and you see that cell where, where Paul was being kept. And, and notice it wasn't like the large county jail. Uh, these dungeons were not such a thing that there was one in the city of Rome. But there were lots of places and they were in, in dark, scary quarters. And there wasn't a published list that you could search on the internet to find which cell block Paul was in. Paul was nothing more than another prisoner chained to a guard in the Roman system. And so when Onesiphorus shows up in Rome, he can't just go to the county jail and say, I want to see Paul. It costs him something. He has to go looking for him. And he goes searching throughout Rome. And he goes to this dungeon and he says, is is Paul here? The man from Tarsus, is he here? They said, what do you care? Why do you want to know? And he might have experienced some ridicule. He might have experienced a beating himself. He might have been threatened with imprisonment as he went cell to cell trying to find where Paul was being kept. But eventually, after this process of searching, Onesiphorus finds him. And when he finds him, Paul says that Onesiphorus refreshed him. He refreshed him. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean? Uh, We don't know exactly. It doesn't say exactly what that means. But whatever they did, whatever time they spent together, whether it was a time in prayer, whether it was just talking about friends and old times, whether it was catching up news from the outside, whether it was uh, reciting back and forth things that they knew to be faithful teachings of the faith, whatever it was, it was refreshing To Paul. I think the thing that stands out to me so much in this is that Paul could have said, instead of recognizing Onesiphorus as the instrument that God had for him to be this ministry of refreshment, instead of recognizing Onesiphorus that way, Paul could have said, this is all I get? All I get is this one guy? I'm the apostle. Why does only Onesiphorus come and see me? Paul doesn't do that. He says, Bless Onesiphorus. This man came and he ministered God's refreshment in my life. You know, I, I think that the application of this, again, very personal part of the Christian life is, is very important for us to see. Uh, you see, because we'll, we'll find ourselves in that dungeon of loneliness, we'll find ourselves in that closet of despair we'll find ourselves in those dark moments in our lives and when we do we ought to look for refreshment to come to us and to look for that refreshment to come many times through one of God's people and it might not be the guy that you thought it would be or the girl that you thought it would be and it might be the person that you hoped it would be but. When that happens, when someone shows up, whether it be to pray with you or to encourage you or just to to talk with you or to take you to lunch or whatever it might be, my prayer is that, that we would not go, this is all I get? Out of all the encouraging things I've ever done in my life, this is it? Because the reality is that that's just the way God works. Onesiphorus was not just another guy. Onesiphorus was God's minister of refreshment to Paul. And Paul saw it, and he received it, and he was encouraged. And when we find ourselves in that dungeon of despair, have your head on a swivel looking for Onesiphorus coming to encourage you. Second part of the application of that, though, is this. The encouragement or the refreshment that we receive uh is, is encouraging to us, but but think about this. Is there anyone in your life that God wants you to be onisciferous to? Just just think for a moment. Is there any friend, any acquaintance, someone within your work sphere, someone within your family sphere, someone within Uh, your church group or small group or adult fellowship group or whatever sphere, is there someone within your circle that right now is in a dungeon of loneliness? Is there someone who's there that you know is in the closet of despair? I'm sure that if all of us thought for a moment we would all think of at least one person I know that I'm thinking of a face right now, but I, I know that th- there may be three faces that we think of. But when that person comes to mind, just ask the simple question, God, do you want me to be your minister of refreshment in this person's life? That doesn't mean that you're going to be their counselor. That doesn't mean that you're going to be their, um, the wind beneath their wings. It doesn't mean that all these kinds of expectations and hopes, we think I can never do all of that. You're right we can't but refreshment can be as simple as a cup of coffee refreshment can be as simple as a note that you write and you mail refreshment can be as simple as just giving someone a firm handshake or a hug when you see them or refreshment could be as as complicated as getting more involved but whatever it is Think of the people in your life that you know are in the dungeon of loneliness. And don't say, well, I'm not supposed to do that because I don't have the badge. I don't have the title. I don't have the whatever. Because Onesiphorus didn't either. Onesiphorus was just another guy. He was just another guy who went looking for his friend Paul. And he found him. And God used him to refresh him. See, one of the things that we need to remember in the Christian life is that Christ ministers refreshment through others. Even you and I. And He does that because He loves us. You know that? Why does Christ move in the Spirit of Onesiphorus, to have him go and subject himself to pain and harm and difficulty in order to find his friend Paul. God does that because he loves Paul, because he loves Paul, and he wants him to see and feel it with flesh and blood. You know what? The same is true for all of us. When we get involved in a ministry of refreshment, we shouldn't do it out of guilt or out of Uh, arm twisting or anything like that, Uh, we should do it because we sense the Spirit of God working within us to go alongside a brother or sister in the faith and just tell them that God loves them, but to do it in the language that we understand of time and coffee or whatever. Those are a couple of the personal things that we see from this book. A couple of the personal observations. The dungeon of loneliness and the ministry of refreshment. But the third thing that I think is really important for us to see uh, this week is that is this. Fight to the finish. Fight to the finish. In one of the most famous sections of 2 Timothy is the way the book ends. And it ends with Paul's acknowledgement and understanding that his life is quickly drawing to a close. He didn't know if he would die at Nero's sword that day or 60 days from now. But he knew that it was coming. He was certain that he would not be released. And so, given the fact that he knew that death was imminent, he uh, writes these words. You know, some of you may have read or heard the last lecture which was a Carnegie Mellon professor who knew he was dying and he penned some words. The Apostle Paul knew that his days were numbered and so he writes these words to Timothy as he reflects on his own life. He says, "For I am already being poured out like a drink offering and the time has come for my departure." That that, that picture of poured out like a drink offering, that we, we I think we kind of understand what that means, but in reality in 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 Uh, Jewish worship practice after the sacrifice of animals was made the last thing that would happen before the sacrifice was done was some wine would be poured out that was the signifier of all of the believer all of the the worshiper pouring out their life before God but when the when the when the uh, wine was poured out then the sacrifice was over it was done it was finished So Paul is drawing on that image when he says, I'm being poured out like a drink offering. In other words, the sacrifice that has been my life is about over, and the time has come for my departure. Then he says these three great phrases, I've fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith. We'll talk about the faith that Paul kept next week. But those three phrases really indicate that Paul had remained faithful, that he had kept the course, that he had walked with God right up to the end. That he sat in that cell not as one who was running away from God, but as one who was clinging to his God. That was where Paul found himself at this point in his life. And he says, Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Paul was looking forward to the fact that this crown of righteousness, the full righteousness of God, was going to be his. He was going to be in the presence of God. And this was not something that just went to the spiritual elite, but this was the prize of all of those who follow Christ. When we usher into eternity... There's a great reward that is waiting for us. But but Paul is extra excited in his last hours because he's not limping into the kingdom. He's not running away from God when he's taken to the finish line. He is running right there with God and he has a sense of triumph when he says, I have finished the race and I have kept the faith. I have fought the good fight. I, I was thinking about Paul's feelings here, and Paul's sentiment here, um, just in regards to us. And you know, I I think that, truth be told, all of us want to end this way. I really believe that. I believe that every person in here wants to end this way. If we really think about our last day, think about your dying day, many times we have no idea when that is. But let's just imagine for a moment that you knew the day that you were to die, how would you want to end? Well, I believe that we would want to end well. We would want to end clinging to Christ, as Paul did in that cell. Not, not running away from him like Fagellus and Hermogenes and Demas, who loved this world so much that had walked away from their stance of faith in Christ. See, we don't want to end our lives that way. We want to end our lives well, and Paul gives us that example. You know, I was thinking about a picture um, that might help us to grasp this a little more. And I I thought about um, running a marathon. And uh, last January, uh, I ran in the Walt Disney World Marathon. Some of you know this, Um, but actually ran is a very generous term. Um, I participated in the Walt Disney World Marathon, and uh, that is the start line to this race. That was the actual start line um, from the race that, uh, that I participated in, and at that start line, there were 18,500 crazy people. Um, I mean crazy. Um, there was one woman dressed as Cruella DeVille with 11 men dressed as Dalmatians chasing her for 26 miles. There was another... A uh, family that was dressed up as the Incredibles, full red body. This is 80 degrees, Florida people, full red bodysuits, eye mask, and everything, the whole nine yards. Um, there were many other flamingos from Fantasia and stuff like that, but all out on this on this race and on this on this run, 18,500 crazy people began this race, um, and, and I, I was one of them. And you know what? At mile 16 of that race, I got a cramp in my foot that made it really impossible for me to, to run anymore. I just couldn't do it. It was, it was painful, and I couldn't do it. And you know, every mile from that point on, there is the hospitality tent, also known as the quick access to the finish line. Um, if you enter this tent, um, and they can't quickly get you back healthy, they'll put you in a van and drive you to the finish line. Uh, That's an option that's available. Uh, So from mile 16 to mile 26, I had 10 chances for the car ride to the finish line, Uh, and I decided not to take any of them, and I just kind of walked along, um, ambled along. I thought, I'm just going to finish this thing. I'm just going to finish. I've not come this far to not finish. So I, that, that's, that's the progression. I get all the way to the last uh, half mile, and I decide I'm not going to walk across the finish line. Um, I, I, I want to at least appear as if I'm running. Um, <laughs> So I decide that I'm going to try to begin running. So I kind of start shuffling my feet, and if you really compensate by moving your arms a lot, it looks like you're going faster than you are. So that's my deal, shuffling feet, moving arms. I come around the corner of the great ball at Epcot Center, and out of my field of vision, there was a hundred-person gospel choir in full robes singing the Hallelujah Chorus. Suddenly, I'm totally transformed. No longer am I a cripple with a cramp in my foot, but you know I'm Michael Johnson, and I'm jumping up and down, and I high-five the conductor, and then I make another turn. I come around the corner, and there's the, the full you know, grandstands where the crowds, and I'm, I'm you know, raising the roof with a crowd down the way. I, I, I turn, and there's, there's Chip and Dale, the characters. I hug one of them. I high-five Pluto, and I cross the finish line. And you know, that (laughs) it sounds a lot prettier than it was, Um, but that whole experience, that whole experience, I was so thankful when I got to the end that I continued. You know what? If I had taken the car at any point down the road, I would have still gotten to the finish line, but it would have been, it would not have been as glorious. It would not have been as, as meaningful. Sure, I would have eventually gotten over it. I would have had a, a Coke and a smile, and it would have been okay. But I kept, I kept moving. And so when I did, when I saw the choir and when I saw the finish line, it was a totally different experience. And I say that because in the Christian life, our destination is secure. The crown of righteousness will be ours if we have placed our faith in Christ. And so it's not about per- persevering in our faith, Is not about earning the crown. Perseverance in the faith is about relishing the end when, like Paul, regardless of our circumstances, we could look around at the end and say, I have finished the fight, I have kept the faith, I've finished the race. That's the way I want to end. That's the way Paul ended. And I think that's the encouragement to all of us, to finish the race. It will be glorious on that day, and it's worth it. You know, when Paul ends his life in that cell, when he ends his life in that cell, he has nothing. But he has everything. You know, Demas, who's mentioned in chapter 4, he wanted everything. He wanted everything. He, his love for the world was greater than his love for Christ, and so he followed off after those things. He wanted everything, and so he got nothing. In our lives, in our lives, it is so worth it to fight to the finish, to fight to the finish, to remain true to Christ, to cling to Him and to the finish. Because on that day, it'll be such a celebration. I'm going to pray in just a moment, and then we're going to sing a closing song. And and the the song that we're going to sing as we close is uh, the song, Be Thou My Vision. There's a great line in that song that says, Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou mine inheritance, now and always. One day, one day, our lives will end. When we do, let's run to the finish line as we live out the personal nature of the Christian life. Let me, uh, let me close this. Father, I thank you for today, and I thank you for the time you've given us to look into your word and to get a picture of Just some of the personal facts of the Christian life. The loneliness that we might experience, the refreshment that you offer, but the joy of finishing well. And Father, I pray that we would trust you and that we would believe you and that we would run to you on that day. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.